0: Hey, Aleka Burma, and I'm going to talk about uh, Olive Schreiner as a as a great writer who's inspired me. Olive Schreiner, South African novelist, pioneering feminist and anti-imperial polemicist, as well as author of the story of an African farm. 1883, is perhaps not a great writer in any conventional sense of the term. She's not great in the way that, say, George Eliot or Milton were great with their great brains, Uh, but in the sense that these writers gave a formative shape to the world they lived in or changed the way that the world was perceived through their art. Olive Schreiner, her dates, 1855 to 1920, was in many ways a flawed writer. After her astonishingly precocious debut, she struggled all her life long with writer's block and numerous illnesses, real and psychosomatic, and did not again see to completion or publish a long novel. Her second and third novels or novel manuscripts, From Man to Man and the melodrama Undine, she obsessively reworked across her life, but did not publish. She was never completely happy with them. Yet in her flaws and faults, Schreiner embodied something of her time, a crisis of her time, how in a rapidly globalizing world of dispersing societies, it was becoming increasingly difficult to give shape to the world in art, and for her in the novel in particular, and this is a conflict that also beset the modernist writers that we've heard a bit about in other presentations. She gave expression also to a crisis of empire, of being a white writer in a colonial situation, trying to find words, English words, to give shape to an African reality, a landscape of dispossession, a situation of intractable conflict that hadn't been articulated yet in so many words by Europeans. So I want to suggest it was in her difficulties and her incompletion that her greatness or her potential greatness in fact lay. Out of her apparent non-writing, her struggle with language, with form, with self-expression, with deadlines, with her body, first in her South African context, her Cape context, and then her British context, out of these struggles, she produced critical ideas that proved influential long into the 20th century, many decades after she died, ideas in feminism, in anti-racism, and in anti-capitalism. She was probably the first colonial writer to be widely read and acclaimed in literary London at a time that the work of Ibsen too, the Norwegian Ibsen, uh, had opened awareness to women's domestic oppression. In the story of an African farm, she raised questions about the novel form in Africa, which many writers after her found helpful and important, questions with which they too struggled. And J.M. Kutzy, who you'll, you'll be hearing from about in another presentation in this series, is one such writer who learned from Schreiner and indeed commented in very insightful ways about her work and her struggle with expression. In her critical analysis of British imperialism in Africa across the 1890s and of the ruthless quest for economic power that drove it, She was to shape the thinking of theorists of empire, like J.A. Hobson, and then later Lenin, who borrowed largely from Hobson, as they mounted their critique of empire as a rampant and world-enveloping form of capitalism. A courageous reviser of her own thinking across her life, which is one of the many reasons she inspires me, she is seen now as one of the foremost Victorian analysts of material and, p- and power relations in a settler society. Her understanding of gender inequities and how these were bound up with other social inequities was ahead of her time. In her 1911 polemical essay, Woman and Labour, she pointed out, probably for the first time in English, that no account of gender oppression could avoid being also a critical account of race and racial oppression. White women often risked silencing black women she observed in their quest for rights and power. In 1913, so two years after Woman in Labour, she in fact resigned her presidency of the Cave Women's Enfranchisement League because it had rejected black women's suffrage. Now some quick biographical information: as Olive Shriner is probably not as prominent as in a way she should be in the annals of 19th century literature. She was born in the then Cape Colony, the ninth child of a German Lutheran missionary and an English mother. She early on lost her Christian faith, something in which she was characteristically Victorian, and something that she reflects on in her novel, her one published novel, The Story of an African Farm. Yet, she at the same time continued to draw on the Bible in her creation of her charged dreamlike allegories in the aftermath of African Farm's success. Olive Schreiner's adolescence was spent as an itinerant governess in isolated, semi-desert eastern regions of of the Cape Colony. Her thinking there influenced by her wide reading, in particular in Herbert Spencer, in J.S. Mill, uh, who's very, very influential on her ideas of women's liberty, what liberty means to women. And also her reading in in Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson on nature, and the inspiration of nature. All of this thinking would shape her fictions, and in particular her construction of her questing often fragile and frustrated female heroines. The manuscript of the story of an African farm, Schreiner took with her to London on an unsuccessful mission in her early 20s to train as a doctor in Edinburgh. She arrived in 1881 in the the UK. The publication of the novel, The Story of an African Farm, Two years later, under the name Ralph Iron, like Mansfield, like many other women writers, she takes on a pseudonym. The publication of the novel brought her into contact with some of the leading social commentators and free thinkers of her day, who became her friends, including Havelock Ellis and Carl Pearson. Influenced by her conversations with these intellectuals, she later, after her return to South Africa, branched into idealist fantasy, such as in dream life and real life, as well as into excoriating political writing, most notably the novella Trooper Peter Helkett of Mashonaland, a devastating critique, a really astonishingly acidic critique of British treatment of the British treatment of her fellow countrymen in the build-up to the Boer War. She married Samuel Cronwright, who took her name. He became Samuel Cronwright Shriner. So in that sense, too, her, her biography represents something of an inspirational uh, beacon Uh, for those interested in women's representation. Olive Schreiner died in England, having spent her final years of prolonged ill health there and never having finished another long novel. To the end of her life, she warned against the the black dispossession on which the new white South African state since 1910 was being built. To bring home a little what Olive Schreiner means to me, and why she deserves the recognition I'm giving her here, I'd like to focus by way of closing on her first novel that I've mentioned now several times, a part allegorical account in microcosm of a repressive colonial society. It's still widely recognized for its pioneering attempt to find an imaginative language to fit, to map onto an alien colonized, and dispossessed land, and this is actually something, the struggle to find an imaginative language is something that she talks about in her preface to the novel, uh, where where she's writing under the name Ralph Iron, and she has a bit of a, uh, a dig at what she calls wild adventure writers who write Africa in such a very different way from the muted gray palette that she says she is going to use in writing of Africa. So to illustrate the struggle with language, this this struggle with trying to find an appropriate palette with which to uh, bring Africa into being in the novel form, uh, and to give a sense of how pathbreaking and inspiring Shriner was and remains, uh, I'm just going to read from the um, opening paragraphs of the story of an African farm, and then from about 10 pages in. Um, and the two things I'd like you really to to think about uh, as as I read um, is the the shift that uh, Schreiner executes between microcosm and or the other way around macrocosm and microcosm in 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 this writing, how she moves she she pans right out and then focuses in very, very closely, and then also how she notices as she describes. Other signs in the landscape, signs of other struggles to describe and to illustrate that landscape uh, that, that she refers to in quite a metatextual way. She's, 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 she's showing that her struggle isn't one that um, has not taken place in this landscape before. So the novel opens. The full African moon poured down its light from the blue sky into the wide, lonely plain. The dry, sandy earth with its coating of stunted Karoo bushes a few inches high, the low hills that skirted the plain, the milk bushes with their long, finger-like leaves, all were touched by a weird and almost oppressive beauty as they lay in the white light. In one spot only was the solemn monotony of the plain broken. Near the centre, a small, solitary kopje rose. Alone it lay there a heap of round iron stones piled one upon the other as over some giant's grave. Here and there a few tufts of grass or small succulent plants had sprung up amongst its stones and on the very summit a clump of prickly pears lifted their thorny arms and reflected as from mirrors the moonlight on their broad fleshy leaves. At the foot of the kopje lay the homestead First, the stone-walled sheep kraals and kaffer huts. Beyond them, the dwelling house, a square, red brick building with thatched roof. Even on its bare red walls and the wooden ladder that led up to the loft, the moonlight cast a kind of dreamy beauty and quite etherealized the low brick wall that ran before the house and which enclosed a bare patch of sand and two straggling sunflowers. You notice how Schreiner is bringing into the novel, they're bringing into the English language, a scene that has not been described before, a vegetation that is completely unfamiliar. And here, my second extract, and on this I will end, we are hearing one of the central characters in the novel, Waldo, uh, named after Ralph Waldo Emerson, We hear Waldo speak, and he's meditating on some um, uh, sand paintings, some Bushman paintings, which he's found on a rock, and these are the signs of other inscription in the landscape that Shriner particularly wants us to notice. We're very microcosmic here, focused right in on the detail of the landscape. Lindell, says Waldo, Has it never seemed to you that the stones were talking with you? Sometimes, he added, in a yet lower tone, I lie under there with my sheep, and it seems that the stones are really speaking, speaking of the old things, of the time when the strange fishes and animals lived that are turned into stone now, and the lakes were here, and then of the time the little bushmen lived here, so small and so ugly, and used to sleep in the wild dog holes and in the sluts and eat snakes and shot the bucks with their poisoned arrows. It was one of them, one of these old wild bushmen that painted those, said the boy, nodding towards the pictures. One who was different from the rest. He did not know why, but he wanted to make something, so he made these. He worked hard, very hard, to find the juice to make the paint And then he found this place where the rocks hang over, and he painted them. To us, they are only strange things that make us laugh, but to him, they were very beautiful. And this constant shifting and oscillations between different aesthetic frameworks that we see in both those extracts is something about Schreiner that I find particularly interesting. So I'd like to close by honoring Olive Schreiner for her idealism, her struggle to give aesthetic expression to her political and social imagination and her determination never to compromise that struggle. Thanks a lot.